If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. While Willers can booking the guests in the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Uh, and as we wade through what is going on today, uh, Canada's economy has uh, shrunk, shrank yet again, 1.1%, but not enough for a recession. <laughs> If we were any closer, uh, I don't know. I guess you need two negative uh, quarters in order to get a uh, a recession. And, and, you know, we've been hearing that forever. Uh, but at best, we're flat. So, um, you know, yeah, <laughs> nothing ventured, nothing gained, I guess. Uh, so that's where we are. And uh, the good news is, is hopefully that will stop uh, interest rates from going up. Uh, what else we got? Oh, uh, Canada has buying 16 Boeing military aircraft. Uh, not from Bombardier, but from Boeing. Uh, and of course, uh, Bombardier is, is unhappy about that. Uh, but something about compatibility with North America and, and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, anyway, uh, it's fascinating as the military budget continues to get cut. There's now 16 Boeing military air- aircraft, uh, being purchased just to simply replace old relics. So that's, uh, also announced today. And this is fascinating as well. Uh, a crisis hotline has been established. 988-988, a suicide crisis hotline. So uh, we'll talk about that uh, throughout the course of the afternoon as well. Uh, interesting, um, uh, you know, sign of the times perhaps, or just technology finally catching up uh, to where we need it. All right, as I mentioned, uh, a big one coming up. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, retirement and uh, how some people, uh, just because of the situation we're in or that, that some find themselves in, uh, Canadians gearing up for retirement may have to make uh, significant cuts into uh, their lifestyle in order to uh, survive. And people are just living longer. I mean, it's it's way different now than it was even at our, you know, with our parents' generation. Uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, that'll, you know, that'll, that'll kick the show off to a great start. But then... Uh, we have Tom Wilson joining us from uh, Junk House because uh, the 30th anniversary of their album Strays is uh, this year. And uh, they're doing a, a show at Bridgeworks uh, tomorrow. And I understand it's sold out. And then uh, the Horseshoe Tavern on December 2nd. They're at uh, tonight in Waterloo at Maxwell's as well. So we're going to talk to him about the... Uh, the, the mini tour for Junk House, and pretty excited. It's going to be a great night on Friday at Bridgeworks. Uh, we'll talk to Tom about all of that. Also, uh, talking about, um, you know, cool places like the Bridgeworks. Uh, the end of an era in Norfolk, say goodbye to a 200-year-old tavern, which uh, was the first bu- uh, brick building in Port Dover, oddly enough. We'll talk to uh, the owner of the Gator at uh, the Gator at Norf- Norfolk Tavern and what that's all about as uh, they wind things up. Also, uh, this is interesting, and if you've been around the planet for any length of time, like some of us, you'll know the name Henry Henry Kissinger, and it seems like this guy was like the queen. He's been around forever and was always pop up and and save the day whenever need be. A former U.S. Secretary of State who played pivotal roles uh, in U.S. foreign policy during the uh, Cold War and, and through various 
uh, crises over the course of uh, of time, has died at the age of 100. Wow, 100. Uh, we'll talk about that with Elliot Tepper coming up a little later on. Also, here's something you haven't heard of in a while, Freedom Convoy. The trial is winding down. Um, you know, anything to be gained from this? Uh, is this all small potatoes considering what we're talking about in the world and uh, Canada's reaction to it? Uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on and see, um, uh, well, I don't know, predict where it's going to go. Will people actually go to jail for this? Uh, sort of thing. I don't know. It's, um, again, it seems pretty, pretty minuscule in the grand scheme of things, considering what the world is going through. All right. And, re, uh, fallout and repercussions from Bill C-18, Google and the federal government reaching a deal, which is, you know, when you think about it, a little different than, uh, they were talking about Meta and Facebook and what have you, because uh, Google, obviously a search engine, um, I would say Facebook's more a social media page. Um, so maybe a, a different beast there in a sense. We're going to talk to Carmi Levy about all of that. Uh, they've reached some sort of deal. We, again, we don't know all the details about it or how that affects uh, anybody else or uh, the local media in any way. Uh, we're going to talk about that coming up a little later on as well. And the Ontario Chiefs are uh, calling for a judicial review of the carbon tax they call it discriminatory uh, discriminatory and uh, are uh, not happy with uh, carbon tax and how it is limiting them uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on and as i mentioned also uh, the uh, uh, the canadian military uh, 16 military planes being purchased from boeing for the canadian military uh, they're basically surveillance planes from what i understand and replacing 40 uh, year old auroras which uh, are just at the end of their line and it's to the point where, you know, you can really control and maintain these for a certain period of time. And then all of a sudden it just becomes more costly as parts are unavailable and such. So uh, that's where we're heading. And again, fascinating and certainly sort of a polar opposite uh, to the news we heard yesterday on how uh, the military is having problems even doing day to day operations and, and missions that they already have uh, on the book. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> a complete 180 and, you know, cuts and what have you yet Bazoom! here's uh here's 16 airplanes so anyway we'll get to the bottom of it find out what is going on are you ready uh for retirement um <laughs> things are so expensive now uh for everybody no matter what end of the spectrum you're at whether you're retiring or whether you're trying to buy a house or or whatever it is uh, but a wave of canadians uh that are gearing up for retirement may be forced to make significant cuts uh, to live comfortably for the rest of their lives. That's a new an, uh, analysis from Deloitte Canada, uh, who looked at people, uh, Canadians between the age of 55 and 64, to gauge uh, if they're ready or not, and certainly from a financial perspective. To talk more, uh, Juan Kim is with us, partner Deloitte, and here now. Juan, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, and thank you for having me today, Scott. So why uh, you say a significant, uh, some may be forced to make a significant cuts or significant, uh, significant cuts to their retirement uh, lifestyle and such. Uh, what's different now? Why, is, why are we seeing more of this now in a post-pandemic world? Uh, so unfortunately, I think a lot of the factors that contribute to the readiness of Canadians for their retirement has I think gradually gotten worse over the past 20 years, and it's the multitude of factors, right? So if you look at the pension participation rate among Canadians who work for private companies, actually has gone down over the past 20 years. Uh, individual savings rate into uh, register accounts in real dollars have actually also gone down over the past 20 years. 
we know the cost of living is going up quite significantly this year. Uh, but we also know the cost of care is uh, increasing even more sharply, right, with the supply and demand on, on the care as we have a more aging population. We also know the life expectancy is longer. Uh, people are living longer, which is a fantastic story. But that also means there are additional years you have to prepare uh, in terms of your financial life. Um, bond uh, pro uh, portfolio, which typically people have uh, retirees have put their uh, funds into. Uh, over the 20 years, we've also seen decline uh, in consistent return on that. Uh, so there's been many of these factors that are happening. And, and at the same time, more Canadians are having uh, real estate as a bigger part of their uh, wealth portfolio because housing prices are so much higher, more actually carrying debt into retirement. So all these factors are happening. And we just unfortunately haven't seen the retirement strategies and advice evolving uh, as quickly to be able to help Canadians address this issue. And, you know, uh, obviously everybody is seeing expenses go up and this would be more challenging or challenging to those who are living on a fixed income. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's where uh, the retirement approach has to really start looking into uh, what is your kind of budget and what is your basket of goods that's going to be required Right, where are you spending money today? Uh, which of those you can cut back in retirement, which are subject to increase, and be able to actually really think through and model out, which is not an easy thing to do, but I think it's really something financial institutions can help uh, Canadians. And I think being able to take a look, take a look into that lens, I think is really important, so you can come up with a more realistic realistic strategies around what is the fixed income you're going to need going forward in in retirement. And, you know, as you're saying, uh, as prices go up generally, and, you know, obviously these are long-term things. These are things you should be planning for long before you get to, uh, close to retirement age. But when times are tough and housing, the situation, affordability, obviously, you know, one of the first things to go is trying to save or plan for the future by by putting stuff aside for this. Yeah, and, and I think uh, that's exactly the reason why we can't just put all this burden on individuals, right? Like when we asked Canadians uh, and near retirees, like why they're not saving it as much. I think primary, uh, always the primary um, reason is actually the cost of living increases. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think instead of just putting all the burden on the individuals, I think we, all of us in the financial services sector also have to step up and, and come up with more innovative ways to help, you know, retirees uh, manage their cash flow better, help the assets that retirees have saved up go longer by you know putting into right investment strategies by helping them with the better tax advice and how to draw down from it um how to access home equity better i think there are all these things that you know needs to really happen to make sure we're really you know helping more canadians uh near retired canadians live the life that they deserve as they go into retirement. Are you concerned that because, uh, you know, people are in the positions that they're in right now and are, in our, you know, feeling the pinch as they are right now, that we're going to see this, you know, maybe 20, 30, 40 years from now when we have a segment of the population who didn't, who didn't have the capability to put enough away? Right. I'm, I'm also particularly worried on top of that, that uh, if we don't actually solve the issue for near retirees today, unfortunately, I think their dependents or children will have to pick up some of that burden as well, which obviously some of that is financial, but it's also mental, physical and emotional, which takes a toll on their productivity as well. And in whole, I think that can even worsen that situation uh, on the retirement readiness of the next generation of Canadians as well. Right. So I think we really need to make sure those things that today's problems are addressed so that they can be more self-sufficient. And then we also need to start thinking about how do we incentivize the next generation more um, 
because today, like, there's no real incentives, right, for individuals to put their uh, savings uh, money away and develop healthier behaviors. And I think those are the areas we also got to look into uh, and, and innovate more as well. Do you think we're uh, more financially literate than we were? Are we getting better? Yeah, I think many data points suggest we are, uh, but we also all know it's not just about the literacy, right? I think education and literacy is one thing, but yeah. we also have to factor in when it comes to money, there's a lot of behavioral inertia that actually exists. And that's yeah. why we need to really make sure the right incentive systems are put in. And if you look at other countries like Australia, they have done the reform to make you know your workplace pension a, a mandatory a requirement, right? And then there are some of those things that can be done as well uh, as well as a more of an individual incentive level that can be done to really help uh, um, Canadians not only know more, but also take all that knowledge into action. Juan Kim with us, partner at Deloitte. Deloitte's uh, latest uh, uh, survey or information, uh, Canadians, several, will be forced to make significant cuts to live a comfortable uh, lifestyle post-retirement. And uh, this coming from Deloitte Canada. Uh, Juan, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Well, thank you for spending time on this important issue, Scott. All right, we've talked about the 30th anniversary of their album Strays, and now Junk House is out on a mini tour, which included stops in London, uh, Waterloo tonight, Hamilton at Bridgeworks tomorrow, sold out, and at the Horseshoe on uh, Saturday night. Tom Wilson, Mohawk author, visual artist, musician, Lee Harvey Osmond, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, and Junk House, and he's here now. Tom, great to have you here. How you doing? Oh, I'm pretty happy. Uh, Order of Canada. You can't forget the Order of Canada, Scott. It's like one of those things that I just, I just did a, uh, I just did a, uh, a speaking engagement at the Sheraton honoring the uh, newest Supreme Court Judge of Canada, and they forgot to say I had the Order of Canada. I'm so sad, Scott. I don't know. What- oh, you know what, Tom? We will make that addition to your bio here. I am terribly sorry. And I mean, that should be the first thing that we're saying is the Order of Canada. What was that experience like for you? I cried. I cried a lot. It was, uh, I had uh, uh, Bunny and George Wilson with me when the Governor General's office called. They were standing with me and all my Mohawk ancestors were standing with me. And it was an overwhelming experience. But, you know, that was uh, that was in June. It's still overwhelming to me. What's it like for you to step back in time with this band? I mean, is this just another chapter in the book that is Tom Wilson? I, I mean, you know, you talk about getting the Order of Canada. Now we're going back 30 years to to Strays coming out and the formation of this band and such. It must be just an incredible journey, especially to be able to go back. Well, you know what? We were a bunch of... Hamilton guys have played the gown and gavel every Wednesday in Hess Village, and uh, we ended up jumping on jets and flying to Scotland and playing in castles with Oasis and touring with you know Green Day and playing with Bob Dylan and you know it was it was quite a trip, Scott. I got to tell you, and it's something that is it's their memories that are so dear to my heart, and it was such a great time in our lives. Only we didn't know it at the time because when you're moving that fast. When uh, when the music industry was still an industry and they had, you know, they had hits on the radio all over the world for us, um, you know, you don't appreciate it as much. Now that we get together in a room, we've rehearsed out of the Mule Spinner at the Cotton Factory, we're playing playing in town uh, tomorrow night at the uh, Bridgeworks. And then, you know what, it feels great to be playing these songs and uh, reconnecting with uh, that music and great to be playing with Ray and Russell, the two surviving members of the band 
Uh, we lost Dan Aiken about ten years ago. So, uh, mm-hmm. so but it's, we're going to have some good time. We're going to we're going to do these shows in honor of Danny, of course, and uh, and see how it goes. It'll feel, it'll feel good. Does it feel different now? Because, like you said, the first time was such a whirlwind. Do you appreciate it more? Yeah, I appreciate it completely. It's one of those memories you look back on, and and uh, uh, you know every every October that comes around, you know we're on a tour bus traveling around Europe, uh, you know, and uh, for like four years. So that was uh, that was something that was a gift. You know, it, it makes it really important for us all to appreciate the moment. You know, the Buddhists say living in the past is depression, and living in the future is anxiety. Our our, mm-hmm. our goal is to live in the moment. And it's just, it's so true. You know, you don't learn until, yeah. you know, you're 64 years old and you live, you've lost, I've lost so much testosterone. I cry every day now. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your life, Scott, you sure appreciate, I appreciate this moment. I love talking to you, Scott. This is great. You know, I, I, I read something that was interesting when listening uh, to you talk about this in, in, in the album, and sorry, the albums, um, and that you said specifically of Strays, it was really, it, they're like folk songs, but they're obviously delivered with a bit more grit than, than folk songs. Do you think that's why this was such a success? Because I remember talking to you about that way back when that, you know, you related to everything. And, you know, and as you said, you, you, you write what you know. But, it, but it's interesting that you positioned it like it was, it was a folk album, but with a rock, uh, you know, element to it. Well, there were songs that were played around the kitchen table at 53 Barnsdale Boulevard, you know, here right in the middle of the city. And uh, uh, you listen to that record, it's funny because a couple guys, Jesse O'Brien, who's a local Hamilton player, just a minute, Scott. Yep. Hey, I'm just here with Scott Thompson. I'll be, I'll be with you in about five minutes. Um, uh, you, uh, they listened to that record, and there was a lot more than just a rock and roll record. We weren't, we weren't like a shoegazer alternative band. There's lots of great shoegazer alternative bands. <laughs> we were all of our beers, you know. I mean, uh, our, our people who I'm friends with now, you know, were like Sloan, Tea Party, those guys, they were children, you know what I mean? We were we were already in our 30s, and we uh, we saw life differently. I mean, I, I went at it, I had a mortgage, I had two kids, uh, you know, there was, there was uh, some dead seriousness about the business we were doing, but uh, the records themselves, man, they stand out. I listened to that record straight, it's 30 years old this year. And to me, listen, I know that I'm singing on it. I know I wrote those songs, but that record sounds as good today as it did then, you know? I would agree with that 100%. So with that, and with having this group of people back together, do you ever sit and think, I could write another Junk House album? No, I guess I could, but uh, kind of busy, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's not like you don't got other things going on in your life, you know. No, I know. I, there's, a, there's, it's just, um, I have a bit of a wait. Um, where I'm finishing that second book for Random House, and I yeah. got the flight out in April, and uh, I got two movie soundtracks I have to work on. So, um, it's not a question of desire. It's just a question of where to fit it in in my life right now. You know, um, maybe, maybe we'll go out and do a few more shows in the summer or something. Who knows? What is your uh, thoughts on on the response? Like the show at Bridgeworks is sold out. I mean, uh, people still love this band. I mean, you know, you know, whether it was a part of their youth or not, like you said, it stands up. 
Yeah, well, you know, uh, the people who love our band are were, were real. They were music lovers, and they were people that were, you know, more like us. You know, there was nothing fashionable about Junk House. There was nothing that was uh, trying to fit in. Uh, and that's what our audience was like. You know, I remember when we got signed, Sony took me out to dinner. President of Sony uh, Records Music took me out to dinner. And uh, they were thinking of signing some uh, Toronto Queen Street bands. And I said, you know what? You can sign those bands, and you know what? You're going to be the toast of the town. Toronto is going to love you. Um, you know, you're going to get in the cover of Now Magazine, and CFNY is going to play your record, and it's all going to be wonderful. I said, but if you sign Junk House, you're going to sell records in Moncton, New Brunswick, and Red Deer, Alberta, and Windsor, Ontario. And you're going to sell records because this music is going to communicate with people who live real lives, not people who are worried about how their hair is combed and wear trousers <laughs> on Queen Street West in Toronto. It's all about just being real. And that's what Junk House was. And you know what? Russ Wilson and Ray Ferrigio walked into rehearsal, and I knew I was dealing with I was dealing with guys that, you know, that I've known my whole life. They are as real as any human beings can be. What's it like for them to get back together uh, with this band? I mean, obviously, we're not asking them. They're not here. But what are your thoughts on that? They're loving it. I know yeah. they're loving it. They're loving playing these songs, you know, and we're playing songs. Some of the songs we're playing in these shows we haven't played in 30 years, you know. They were just on the record. So it's kind of nice to uh, to break open. They're almost like breaking open brand new songs in some ways. All right, can't wait to see you at uh, Bridgeworks. That's uh, tomorrow night, and then the Horseshoe Tavern on Saturday night, and they're in Waterloo at Maxwell's tonight. Tom Wilson, Mohawk author, visual artist, musician, and Order of Canada. Tom, have a great night. Can't wait to see it. Thank you. Love you, Scott. You take care, buddy. If you're in Port Dover, the end of an era in Norfolk as they say goodbye to a 200-year-old tavern, which was the first brick building in Port Dover. Matt Smith is with us, is with us now, owner of the Gator at Norfolk Tavern, uh, Norfolk Tavern, and is with us now. Matt, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, we are working away at it here. So is this it, Matt? Is this the last day? This is the very last day for the hotel. So, uh, talk a little bit about that, and and how late are you open till today? Well, we'll probably be open at two a.m. and uh, it's a full house already. People, uh, this whole hotel means a lot to people, and there's a lot of emotion flowing around the place today. So, everybody's well aware in town that this is it for for the place. Yes, it's got pretty good exposure through the local newspaper. And just the grapevine, and people know that this is it. So uh, give us a bit of history here. Obviously, it's been around for 200 years. Uh, you know, why now the, the, the change, and, and, and obviously the building is, is on its last legs, as far as we know. But, but how did you get here, Matt? Well, what happened with me, this kind of became my COVID miracle because it was closed down, and they didn't have anybody to open it up. So they asked me to do it because I'd done bars before. Mm -hmm. So I took it on, and it's been a real pleasure being the caretaker of this place for the last couple of years. But the property uh, recently sold, and the new people want it. I think they're going to put another bar in, but they're going to do some retail and probably some condos on the location. So obviously when you hear something like a 200-year-old tavern, you're thinking, wow, that's worth saving, but not the case here. Well, the building is tired, unfortunately. And yeah. they did have people in to look at it to see if it could be saved. 
and really it came down to they couldn't do it, right? So what's so, it been for you for the last, what's it been like for you for the last week or so? Oh, it's been incredible what we've turned over in here. People from everywhere coming and getting their last kick into the place. And it was the, the live hot spot in town always, but it's really come alive the last couple of weeks. So any second guesses, any second thoughts as to, you know, gee, maybe we should have kept something going or at least something like this on this on this uh, spot? Well, believe it or not, I do rib fests all over North America. And so this came on as I just live close here. So yeah. this really was a hobby for me, but it's become a little more than that. But yeah. I'm sure something will fall in my lap. I'm just going to go to Florida for a few weeks and see what happens. So what have you been hearing from some of the people that are coming by, Matt? Well, most of it's like, um, oh, my father came here, and this is where I had my first beer. And there was even a girl in last night, and she took a picture right in the same exact spot. Her dad (laughs) probably took a picture 30 years ago. She just wanted to have it with her picture. Then That's the kind of stuff that's going on around here. So, have you had any special festivities over the last little while to wind this down? Well, we did 15 days of music here to wind it down. So, we've had bands in for approximately the last 15 days. And what has that been like? It's been wild. It's just been well-supported and been pretty cool. So, today we've actually got three bands upstairs and a live jam going down in the break down here. So, we're trying to take it out the best we can. So uh, why today? Just because simply the end of the month? Simply because it's the last day open. Yeah, there you go. All right. So what will stand out for you as the, from this experience, Matt? Well, it's all about the town. And the people just, it's the same people come. And I don't know what the people that come every day here are going to do tomorrow. Because they're going to realize that it's a big change tomorrow. So um, it's just a piece of history that going to move on i guess it's interesting explain it right it's interesting how places like that become uh, like uh you know a meeting spot become ground zero for the community and people just coming to hang out and and just talk it is ground zero and really this is the best location in town for this type of operation and it was the same for friday the 13th it would always start here and Mm. always end it here no matter what else was going on in town yeah. So it's just been a great location, right? Yeah, you know, you forget about the history with Friday the 13th and such. Uh, hopefully something will be there soon in its place to, uh, you know, to help when that comes around again. Yeah, um, I think they're looking at it, you know, a couple of years for whatever's going to happen here next. So yeah. things are definitely going to be shifted around. There's just no doubt about it. All right, so you're staying you're staying open till night to, tonight till two o'clock, and you're going to take it right to the end. Going to take it right to the end, and then <laughs> turn down turn out the light. Oh man! Well, what a great piece of history, a great story, Matt. Thanks for sharing it with us, and good luck. No problem. I appreciate you calling and asking about it. All right, Matt Smith, owner of the Gator at No Fork Tavern. After uh, well, been a tavern for two hundred years. Tired, can't be saved. Uh, time to move on, but certainly a centerpiece uh, in that city. First, uh, 
first brick building in town, really, when you think about it. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Um, I remember this guy as a kid, and it, he, he seemed to be one of those people that would live together, or live forever, rather. Uh, former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, who played a pivotal and sometimes polarizing role in U.S. foreign policy during the Cold War, has passed away at the age of 100. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University, and here now. Elliot, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. And I, too, uh, remember him from a very early stage. He was part of my education. We had and to uh, study the works that he, he uh, put out for us. And it, he just seemed to be involved for such a long period of time, even past the time of being a Secretary of State. He was always involved in some way, it seemed. Yes. <laughs> he a uh, uh, very controversial figure. I've been reading some of the more thoughtful reviews, and I've also gone back to what he uh, what he wrote and when he wrote it, uh, he seems like he was always a, always there. Uh, when he wasn't Secretary of State, he was called upon by his successors and by the presidents that he uh, did not directly serve, but he did, uh, of course. Uh, you know, we should remind ourselves, he was a professor at mm. Harvard, and then he got invited by Rockefeller to be his advisor. Rockefeller flamed out as a candidate, but then he was picked up and ended up in, inside the innermost corridors of power. And in fact, you could say that for some purposes, he was president of foreign policy under the Richard Nixon administration uh, when Richard Nixon was kind of dissolving under Watergate. So he's played a, a pivotal role. He, he's he's strode like a colossus across American foreign policy for hmm. half a century or more. So why so controversial? Uh some of what he did was highly praiseworthy, and some of it was um, involved very morally uh, disputatious, very morally amb- ambiguous uh, uh, actions, and particularly in regard to the Vietnam War. I've been looking at some of the headlines on this, and the uh, you know the uh, a lot of this was you know great foreign secretary, but controversial. But Rolling Stone says. <clears throat> Good riddance. Hmm. Henry Kissinger, war criminal beloved by America's ruling class, finally dies. I mean, that's the kind of of uh, dispute you can get into there. I also went back to what his earlier um, contributions were, just to quickly remind us of that. Uh, things I was trained on when I was a student. He wrote a book in 1969 on nuclear weapons and foreign policy. That was a a subject that really shaped my my career, and I still, as you probably know, talk a lot about nukes. But then, November 1st, 2022, you know, like a year ago, he wrote a book called The Age of Artificial Intelligence and Our Human Future. So Mm. just a remarkable span. What he did in terms of Vietnam will forever be controversial. He was given a Nobel Peace Prize for trying to broker an end to that war. But meanwhile, he oversaw the bombing of Cambodia secretly uh, and viciously, and then basically uh, abandoned uh, abandoned Vietnam to the to the North Vietnamese, although it took a couple years. So uh, he also has to be remembered not only as a Nobel Prize winner, 
apparently he tried to t- send that back. But we have to remember that he, he brokered the peace in the Middle East between mm-hmm. Egypt and Israel. Uh, and that uh, peace treaty has really held all along. He's, he transformed the politics of Asia uh, with going, you know, only Nixon could go to China. But it was, it, was, um, it was Kissinger who sought to, you know, arrange that, working through Pakistan quietly, so that Nixon could go and make this groundbreaking uh, transformative action. And we have to say that being invited at age 100 by Xi Jinping to come to China as yeah. a valued friend, uh, that's got to be part of his legacy as well. Anybody, uh, who would we look at in today's world of politics who, who would be on the same plane? No, uh, we, we just don't have the likes of him at yeah. all. Uh, his subtle diplomacy in the Middle East, his grasp of uh, long-term and short-term and balance of power, and on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, he's one of his most um, interesting uh, commentators, a fellow named Joe Nye, who was a professor at Harvard, who was a student and then became a colleague, has written, I think, a, a really thoughtful piece who ended up calling him, on balance, he did more good than harm. And mm. you should see him as a pragmatic idealist. And perhaps that's as good a summary as we're ever going to get about this very long and mixed and highly influential uh, career of Henry Kissinger. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, passing away at the age of 100. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Are you aware that the Freedom Convoy trial is winding down or that it was even going on? Uh, it's it's interesting in, 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 I guess, the grand scheme of things and everything that's going on in the world that uh, Canada's, uh, the nation's capital, was brought to its standstill uh, with the group of uh, citizen truckers. Is the crime the truckers showing up, or is the crime that somebody allowed them to stay and just sort of ran away from it all? Uh, let's bring in Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He is here now. Duff, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am. Thank you. Hope you are as well. So, Duff, your thank you, Duff. Your your thoughts on what we're seeing with the Freedom Convoy? I'm not sure it's gaining uh, too much attention at this point. Um, your thoughts on on this whole process? Well, what the uh, government has tried to do, which is not surprising, um, Crown prosecutors decided to go after what they're labeling as the organizers, um, and uh, Tamara Leach and, and Rick Barber, and also Pat King will be tried in the spring. Uh, his trial set for May of 2024. And they were the most active. Uh, Tamara Leach started the GoFundMe campaign to raise money. Um, lots of posts on social media by all three of them. And they were covered by the media, very uh, prominent in terms of being there. and and issuing posts directing people as to what to do. So um, rather than trying to charge individuals with harassing people or noise complaints, violations, um, intimidation, obstruction of police, 
They've gone after the organizers. It happens often in situations like this where they just go after the, the big fish and uh, leave the others alone in terms of prosecutions. And the challenge is proving that they were organizing and counseling people to disturb the peace and and uh, do other uh, sorts of uh, things that obstruct the police, et cetera, uh, and that there was a conspiracy to do this. And that's the challenge for the Crown, and the defense is saying, no, they were actually telling people to be peaceful, and uh, we're not doing any of these things that the Crown is alleging or actual violations of peaceful protest. Uh, we remember the Emergency Act was called like three weeks after this all started. It seems in retrospect, uh, Duff, that, you know, the blame really is the fact of lack of preparedness, um, you know, that this this protest came to town. And I'm sure many thought it would leave as fast as it arrived with its tail between its legs. But instead, it proved that there was no plan. There was no plan, no intelligence, no problem between whether it's the prime minister, the mayor, the police chief. They just they just weren't prepared. Is that not bigger than what we're going through now? And because I, I would still ask the question, could this happen again? What's to stop it from happening again? Is there a plan now? Uh, there still isn't a plan for that stretch of street in front of Parliament Hill. And um, there debating what to do, and and Ottawa wants it opened up, uh, or at least the feds to take over jurisdiction of it. So there'd be one police force that would be making decisions if there was a blockade like that again, as opposed to three, um, the OPP, RCMP, and Ottawa police force trying to cooperate on it. Most of the evidence shows that the Ottawa police chief, although he's defended himself very vigorously and publicly, that he was essentially trying to assert turf and and not cooperating with others, uh, RCMP and other police forces, and and essentially allowed the truckers to set up and put on their air brakes and and get entrenched in a way that made it very difficult to remove them. Um, When other protests have been planned since, in Toronto, around Queen's Park, uh, the Ontario legislature, and Ottawa again, they've cooperated to just essentially block people from going to those locations. So they haven't been able to set up and don't have to be removed. So that really was the problem. It's not a problem to block a road. It's it's used as a matter of protest for in a lot of a lot of different uh, instances in the past. The problem is blocking a road, honking your horns twenty four seven, and causing a a disturbance to the peace that people have a right to enjoy when they're living in, in an area. And they just you know the police allowed them to do it. And uh, now the Crown is trying to hold them accountable through the criminal code. It'll be interesting to see whether they can win. It's interesting. It just seems there's more attention being given to the people who organized this or attempted to organize it, because many couldn't figure out who was organizing it, if anybody, or there was a spokesperson at any given time. We're paying more attention to that rather than preventing it from happening again or trying to figure out how it did happen. Yeah, well, it it, it is a difficult issue with the cross-jurisdiction, you know, the parliamentary precinct is is under parliament's control with the RCMP being the police force because it's national grounds, but then the street in front is is an Ottawa street. So, and across the street is the prime minister's office and the Senate and, and uh, Senate buildings, uh, offices. Uh, so when you have this shared jurisdiction, um, 
no one really wants to give it up, but also they realize it didn't work. So it's just taking a long time to work that out. As for proving who were the organizers and was there a conspiracy to do all of this and encouraging others, you're right. It was not a very organized protest. There were lots of online posts from lots of people, money being raised through many different avenues. Um, like many protests, there, it's, someone may call for a protest, but who shows up and who's organizing various factions to show up is not under the control of any one person or a few people. So that's why it's be interesting to see whether they can uh, find them guilty of a conspiracy to do all of this. Um, I think they can be found guilty of counseling disturbances of the peace and obstruction uh, because they, there is evidence more that is more clear that they were doing that, telling people what to do at times uh, in ways that, that violate the rules of peaceful protest. Uh, so we'll see for the three of them um, how it, how it turns out in the end. Uh, and the defense has just start, started yesterday or, or Monday um, presenting their case. And uh, it'll be wrapping up soon. Uh, they're being tried by a jury. Pat King will be tried by a judge alone in May. Uh, so we'll have to wait to that uh, and, until uh, uh, the summer to actually see the, the full rulings on all three of them. And you've up again, one of many, to expose a critical weakness in our national security all you have to do is attack that street because nobody seems to know whose job it is to protect it. Like that seems yeah. like something that should be resolved. Yeah, very much so. Um, and yeah. keeping it shut permanently is one resolution and making it a yeah. pedestrian walkway. The problem is, as anyone who lives in Ottawa knows, there are literally uh, must be hundreds, uh, certainly dozens of buses that run through there every day because it's a major east-west corridor to getting over yeah. to Gatineau across the bridges and, and also other parts of Ottawa. So it's really hard to keep that shut forever uh, and without really hurting uh, the, the public transportation system of Ottawa, which is why Ottawa wants it opened up again. Uh, you know, and the route one thing, but at least a plan to see who's in charge when something like this does, uh, you know, present itself again. Duff Conacher yeah. with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Duff, thanks so much for the time as always. Be well. Thank you. Take care. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, I am. All right, let's talk about Bill C-18, uh, miracle or not. Google and the federal government have reached a deal. Uh, any sort of detail, any, you know, we hear that it's, it's worth X number of dollars. Uh, who does that go to? How do we get it? Uh, what are your thoughts on all this, Carmi? Yeah, so we know that you know originally the federal government wanted Google to pay 172 million in, and uh, Google countered with 100 million, and it ended up at 100 million. So clearly, Google won this negotiation battle. Um, they're going to pay it annually. It'll be indexed to, in, to inflation. If uh, other countries come up with similar laws, and we know that a number of them are uh, that raise those numbers, then uh, the federal government says that it will reopen the agreement and negotiate new rates. Uh, so you know, you know th that's the good news. Um, also, well, what we don't know at this point is where that money goes. I mean, presumably it's going to the media industry. So media outlets that have suffered because advertising revenue has largely shifted over to the digital platforms. Eighty percent uh, of online revenue is is being soaked up by these big American platforms. So presumably it'll come back into the media landscape. But exactly who gets what, how much, under what circumstances, the timing of those payments. 
Uh, we don't know those details yet. We will probably hear more details over the next few weeks. CRTC is finalizing its uh, rule book, basically, for enacting the law. And we know that the law will be enacted. Basically, it goes into effect uh, and starts being leveraged day to day on December 19th. So we'll learn more over the next little bit. But uh, you know, bottom line is the industry is getting some money that it didn't have before. Is it as much as we'd like? No. But it's certainly better than what we had before, which was essentially nothing. And we had big tech getting a free ride. That free ride ends next month. Does this change the game? Is it enough to have an impact? And again, it's Um. just one. I wish it. I wish that were the case. Uh, but no, uh, you know, this, I think, is a it, it's an important milestone. Uh, you know, it, it sort of it marks the the first time that digital platforms have become stakeholders in the finances of uh, Canadian media. So it's an important starting point, but there need to be more chapters. So Meta, for example, we're waiting to hear if they're going to come back to the table and negotiate a similar deal uh, and start carrying content sourced from Canadian media outlets on their platforms, which they had removed a few months ago in protest of this law. So uh, I certainly want to see Meta come back to the table. Right now, it's only Google and Meta that are uh, in scope for the legislation at this point in time. But it'll be interesting to see over the next number of months and years, who else will be seen as qualifying for this. And and so, for example, will TikTok, which seems to have similar scale to these players, will they now fall in scope? And so I think we're going to see an exercise that will really start to audit who the other players are and who should be joining Google and possibly Meta uh, in being part of in, you know, complying with this new law. Is Google uh, a different animal here, apples to oranges, because Google is an actual search engine, whereas the other places are sites that people post content? Is that different? Does that matter? I think apples to oranges is probably a really good way to 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 determine that because, yeah, I mean, Meta runs social media platforms, which are by definition a very different animal yeah. uh, than a search engine. Or, you know, and Google, of course, has other services that are included in this. So, for example, Google News um, or, you know, any other Google platform where uh, content would be surfaced. So, I think apps on Android to discover and surface content. So, uh, yeah, I think they are somewhat different. But, I mean, at some point, you have to have one law that tries to corral them all under the same umbrella. And then what happens when something that is post-social that we haven't even seen yet comes along? You want to make sure that the law is flexible enough to incorporate the different types of technologies that we are seeing and interacting with day to day. So I think you know this is a good starting point, uh, but certainly that law is going to have to shift over the years as technology continues to advance. Uh, does this set a precedent? So $100 million, uh, for everybody? Uh, I think it does. It, it, I, I don't think the number is something that we're, we're going to want to yeah. hold on to. I think they needed to start start off and essentially not tick off Google to the point that they would stay away from the table. So they yeah. got Google in their, their stakeholder. Now they've agreed to write a check every year, which is good. Uh, and then I think negotiations continue on an ongoing basis. And, and certainly this will be uh, the mirror that will be held up to other uh, countries as they establish their own laws and other technology companies as they try to negotiate negotiate their deals with other countries too. Canada is now a leader in that regard. Can uh, we don't have much time left here, Carmi. Can uh, Google afford to write a check for this mo- amount of money or a greater amount of money to every country? 
you know, it's interesting. That's one of the reasons why they were so difficult here was that they were worried that, you know, you know, hundred million here, hundred million there it kind of adds yeah. up as you go from country to country. But this is a company that pulled in well over $200 billion in advertising revenue globally last year. This is still a drop in the bucket. There aren't enough countries in the world to come close to soaking up that amount of revenue. Google, Google can easily afford it and be a, a, va- a valued partner. If it's making profit from the countries where it does business, it should pay back in. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist, uh, talking about Bill C-18, Google, the federal government, and the rest jumping on board. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. You too. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Chiefs of Ontario, representing more than 130 First Nations within the province, have filed for a judicial review of the Trudeau government's carbon tax. Uh, and leaders in Ontario say that Canada needs to fix what they call a discriminatory carbon pricing system, arguing that the federal government has failed to address their repeated concerns and blocked their exemption request, only to then issue a carve-out targeting uh, voters in Atlantic Canada. A group representing the 133 First Nations filed the application in federal court Thursday, uh, the application for judicial review in federal court Thursday, claiming the system places unjust price on their communities without suitable cost relief. To talk more about all of this and what it means to First Nations communities, Liam Midzane Gobin is with us, settler, scholar, and assistant professor of political science, Brock University, and here now. Liam, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, Scott. I'm doing well. How are you? So far, so good. Thanks so much, Liam. Uh, your thoughts on how this affects First Nations? Are you surprised they too, like many Canadians, are questioning this? I'm, I can't say that I'm surprised, but I think it comes from a very different context. And I think it it comes from a sense of frustration, really, built up over, I mean, generations, certainly at this point, but especially under this government, a lot of promises uh, that have not been kept and a lot of um, kind words that that really don't end up providing solutions. And so um, I'm not surprised, but I think the context is a lot different. Talk about that context and how it is more challenging. Sure. So one of the really interesting things about the suit is the way that Attawapiskat specifically is being um, not singled out, but is one of the lead kind of communities pushing for this. Um, folks will probably remember um, in the mid 2010s that um, Chief yeah. Teresa Spence uh, from Attawapiskat was one of the real leaders in um, the movement by a lot of the First Nations chiefs against a lot of the discriminatory funding that was was being seen then and still being seen now. Um, part of the reason that Adewapiskat is at the forefront of this is because they are representative of a lot of Northern communities that have a real infrastructure gap and don't have the financial support or infrastructure in place to be able to withstand some of the additional costs that this kind of a measure, the, the carbon tax specifically is imposing on them. And not just that, but what the federal government did is kind of what the federal government has consistently done, which is impose a solution without really understanding the fact uh, of not just that infrastructural context and that those existing infrastructure deficits, but also that the solution they came up with will harm and really impact First Nations communities, especially in the North, more so than almost any other community in the country. And, and so with... Uh, yeah, sorry. So, no, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
No, just like when they do these other little carve outs, uh, not little in this case, but when they do other right. carve outs for other communities that need support and aren't willing to do it for, for First Nations that are already in greater deficits than these other communities. When we talk about housing, heating, infrastructure, like it sends a message that the government doesn't care. And, 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 you know, certainly uh, 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 blind or deaf to this in the sense that obviously, clearly, many First Nations uh, communities are dealing with massive infrastructure uh, deficiencies and, and, and projects that need to be complete long before they can get to the point of, of affording a carbon tax. I mean, it just seems bizarre. It yeah. seems out of touch. I mean, part of the part of the problem is that these communities are in the north and so rely on diesel and other fuels yeah. for heating all winter. Um, it's too cold for them to rely on some of the uh, some of the solutions like heat pumps that the federal government is saying it, it's trying to support, and yet they don't have the infra- infrastructure in place to be able to get off of diesel because the federal government isn't providing them the money that they need to be able to do that, despite taking millions and millions of dollars from their communities. And so it is this really difficult position that the communities are facing. Uh, Obviously, this is a big issue with many Canadians. The fact now that First Nations are making this case and, you know, and again, it, it just seems even more ridiculous when you look at it from this point of view. Will this have any impact, you think, on the on the bigger discussion? I mean, here's this should be addressed first, it would seem. I think so. I, part of this, part of what's especially baffling is that First Nations are also on the front line, along with a lot of other Indigenous communities, of saying, we want to be part of the solution. I mean, First Nations are among those that are going to be hardest hit by climate change, that are already mm-hmm. being hardest hit by climate change, and are the ones kind of leading a lot of the movements to be able to do something about this. And so the fact that this initiative uh, is going to actually end up harming them and that the government doesn't see fit to take the time to sit down with them to find out what the problems are is really seriously concerning because mm. ultimately that's what they're asking for. They're, they're, I mean, the, the judicial review is going to ask that the carbon tax be um, halted on them, but more so it's so that they can have the federal government back at the table to talk with them. That's what they want. And that's what the government's not willing to do. So where do you think this yeah. is going, Liam? Where, like, where do you think this ju- judicial review will go? W- what do you think it will accomplish? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not a legal scholar. But one yeah. of the things that – so I, I can't speak about kind of what's going to come out of the case. But right. one of the things I keep hearing over and over again from coast to coast really, but also up in the north, is that governments don't seem to really listen or care or do anything until they're forced to by the courts. Or until public opinion becomes such that they think it's in their best interest to actually do something and show up. And so if part of what this lawsuit is trying to do is force the government back to the table, uh, have the courts do that, then you know what? Like, I honestly think good for the First Nations for trying to use the tools at their disposal, learning what the government is telling them they care about and trying to use those uh, those processes and those means. but. I think the broader question that all of us have to ask ourselves is, are we not willing to really hold the government to account when they do these kinds of things repeatedly? Uh, because that's what we're seeing. And we're seeing it over and over, whether or not it's child and family welfare or climate change in this case, or the ring of fire development. 
um, that we're mm. starting to see up in these same communities. Um, you know, like it, it's a pattern and it's one that First Nations have for years said has to stop. Liam Midzane Gobin with us, Settler Scholar, Assistant Professor of Political Science, Brock University, Chiefs of Ontario, representing more than 130 First Nations within the province have filed for a judicial review of the Trudeau government's uh, carbon tax after a cutout, a carve-out rather, for Atlantic Canada, but nothing for them. Liam, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Uh, the federal government has landed on Boeing to replace the military aging patrol planes in a multi-million dollar source deal, closing the door on Quebec-based business jet maker Bombardier, uh, which has been pushing for an open bid. Interesting when we hear about cuts and even more recently, uh, military officials saying uh, this week that uh, they barely have enough to uh, meet the commitments that they already have. And now, boom, 16 planes. Look at that. Richard Schmuka is with us. Senior Fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute, Expertise in Canadian and American Foreign and Defense Policy. And here now, Richard, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Hope uh, things are well with you. Thank you for the, thank you so much, Richard, and for taking the time. You know, just yesterday or this week, an official was saying that, you know, they don't even have, uh, they're concerned about making or meeting their, uh, the, the basic commitments that they have now. Um, obviously we've heard of cutbacks in the military coming and such. Now, blammo, we got 16 new planes. How does this happen? And it's, it, 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 what's the message here? Well, the decision had to be made today because, uh, the Canadian government approached the U.S. government to purchase these aircraft uh, in the spring, and there's a time limit, and today's actually the last day that they could reply. So they've actually dithered on this decision up until the very, very last day. So that's the kind of the timing around this. On a broader level, uh, basically, the production line for this aircraft is set to close in the coming years, and if there's no new orders. And so Canada was offered an opportunity to get into the last sort of set of aircraft that were being built. Uh, and this was around 2020, and they started realizing that what they had originally projected using the current aircraft, the uh, CP-140 Aurora, uh, their timelines probably weren't going to be realistic. Uh, they had suggested that the last aircraft would be used until 2038. And at that point, it would be over 55 years old. And given the threat environment, the government made a decision that they were going to go uh, towards buying this aircraft rather than what they originally projected having a, um, having a competition uh, near the end of this decade. So is that why Bombardier is out of this deal or wasn't involved or allowed to bid? Well, there was no competition because Bombardier doesn't have an aircraft uh, at present yeah. uh, that fits this role. Uh, and they would have to basically design and build one in the coming right. years. Uh, and that also had challenges that I think many within uh, the government were pretty um, pretty concerned with. So consequently, they, the government looked to what was on offer. The P-8 is basically used by almost all of our core allies, uh, its, its largest users to our south. And it would be relatively easy to transfer into this aircraft compared to going with uh, what might be an aircraft that they were the only user with if they had gone uh, if they had selected, if they had selected a Bombardier to build the next aircraft. So basically, uh, running out of time, the option was there. They took it. How do you? Um, is that the reasoning for how do you cut and spend at the same time? Because we're sort of hearing mixed messages here. Yeah. So the cuts that were announced 
earlier this month or late last month. Uh, they all seem to melt together now. But uh, the cuts are announced basically were part of a broader government uh, initiative to sort of you know, reduce spending. Uh, there has been a long spending plan that's existed since 2017 from the, 27, uh, from the Strong Secure Engage uh, white paper, which basically sort of outlined uh, spending for the next 20 years for the KNR forces. And uh, this was later in the plan. They've kind of moved it around. But a lot of these increases are coming because a lot of capabilities in the armed forces are quite old, right? We're talking about the Aurora right now, which is yeah. already 40 years, right? Uh, it needs replacement. And, and some of the big ticket items that are coming down the pipeline here, are the F-35 and the biggest one, which is the Canadian surface combatant, uh, which is going to replace our frigates. Those programs have big spending attached to them. Those are planned and programmed in for the for the coming years. Uh, just with with the Aurora's replacement, they've kind of just switched the order a bit because of largely because the threat environment's worse. The Aurora is probably not going to last how long they expected, and the P8 is available right now and it won't be available in the future. So, I mean, the one thing I should point out is like to say that there would be a competition isn't really going to be accurate because it's either you're going to select. You're going to have only Bombardier competing in the future, or you have right. only Boeing now. There's no realistic way to have a competition that will have both, if that makes sense. You were talking about how this plane was getting towards the end of its production run if more orders didn't come in. Are we buying a plane that is already obsolete? Not really. I mean, production only started about 12, 13 years ago now. Uh, yeah. And the one, thing that you, the one thing is when you buy a U.S. military platform, whether it be a ship or a tank or whatever, the U.S. government's pretty good about making it relevant or continuing to maintain its relevance. They, they, in, right. they, they largely spend to ensure that they care about what they send their forces out into the world with. And so they're not going to send something that's not going to be effective, right? And the other thing is that there's 170 air, 70 of these aircraft, I think with Canada gets to 190, they're basically going to be effective for quite some time because there's such a large user base for it. So we can kind of join that sort of group or that community of users to ensure that we're going to remain effective in the, in the coming years or the coming decades, I should say. Uh, is it wrong to assume, like, I mean, you hear so many um, horror stories about our military and how it's falling behind with the exception of, as you talked about, the F-35s and, and these and, and and ships that are already built in that are on the horizon. But you just you, you get the feeling that this is all being held together with duct tape and binder twine. I mean, is, is that, that much oh, of an no, is that much of an exaggeration? No, no, no. It's much worse. I, I think if people if if your listeners want to hear something that's pretty shocking, uh, the commander of the uh, commander of the Navy, uh, Admiral Topshi, uh, released a video on YouTube just a couple days ago, and he's pretty blunt uh, in terms that I don't think I've ever heard a Canadian. Uh, senior military uh, officials say in decades about the state of our military, and 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 I think even then he's he's kind of sugarcoating it a bit because if you look at just the state of the personnel challenge that's facing the Navy, the Army, the Air Force, it's pretty bad. So I mean, and a large part of it is that a lot of a lot of these personnel don't love operating equipment that's probably older than some of their parents. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think it's, it's, it's been a real challenge uh, for for members of the military to kind of get this story out. of it. And I think finally they're kind of coming to the fore. His comments aren't that much different from uh, General Air, the, uh, the chief yeah. of defense staff, who, who said the same thing. It's, it's a really ugly picture out there. 
So new equipment, new these new planes on the way, and we've talked of other uh, projects and such. It is it, it, does that is that a obviously it's a positive move, but th- does it help in any way? Does it help with morale? Does it help with recruiting? I think it does a bit. It's one part of the challenge because any military capability has two parts, right? It's it's part of it's the actual equipment, and the other side is the personnel. And if, as I said before, mm-hmm. if you're operating something that's 20, 30, 40, 50 years old, you're not going to be that happy, right? Because you want to have the best tools to do your job, especially if you know what you're facing out there when you go on deployments and, and operations, right? So I think that helps, uh, but the challenge is still immense. And, and I think that this, that's going to take not just, you know, two, three, four, five years, it will take decades to sort of repair the military to bring it back to where it is today. Because think about a pilot. A pilot takes at least six, seven, eight years just to train. So Somebody who's who's joining now won't really be in a pipeline until a decade from now, right? Wow, it's like telling your kids to take their Game Boy away or their game away and then here, play Pong. That's what we used to use. Uh, Richard Schmuka with a senior fellow, McDonald-Laurie Institute, Canadian and American foreign defense policy expertise. Richard, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This one coming from email regarding the Port Dover Norfolk Tavern closing tonight. To which one listener says, what a great place for a beer and a burger. You will be missed. Cheers. Keep right except to pass.